Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hi, this is Laura Stark. I'm a faculty member at Vanderbilt University in the Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. I recently had the chance to talk with Lachlan Jane about her new book, Malignant, How Cancer Becomes Us, which was published in 2013 by University of California Press. Dr. Jane is a professor of anthropology at Stanford University, and she's published widely, especially in anthropology of law. So this new book aims to provoke, and especially um, aims to unsettle our conventional ways of talking and thinking about life, death, and time in doctor's offices, corporate offices, courtrooms, bedrooms, and even in classrooms. I recently read this book with a small group of students in my course medicine on trial, and I had the chance to talk with the students and with Professor Lachlan Jane about the new book. Hope you enjoy. This is Laura Stark, and I am very happy to be talking with Lachlan Jane. Uh, and you are talking to us from the West Coast. So thanks very much for making the time for the New Books Network. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And I'm here um, with seven other folks. So we are doing a collective interview uh, for you of the book Malignant. So I'm going to um, give you a sense of who you're actually talking with right now. Hi, I'm Hayes Bynum. Hi, I'm Julia Wong. Ethan Leibowitz. 
Hello, I'm Bianca McMemory. Hi, I'm Sarah Spain. Hi, I'm Abby Jacobs. And we also have Devin over here, but she actually has laryngitis and can't speak. So she's, uh, <laughs> she's been whispering. It's all been very secretive with Devin today. <laughs> um, so Lachlan, to start off, so you are trained as a cultural anthropologist and your area of specialization is in law and specifically your previous work has been on injury. But for malignant, it seems like um, your access to the field came through a very uh, different route than it does for most anthropologists um, in that you were diagnosed with cancer, it seems like, uh, in your mid-30s. And um, it was you came to regard it as a misdiagnosis from a point earlier, uh, a few years earlier. And so a lot of the story is very specific um, to you. Um, and at the same time, you describe your, um, your story as in many ways, very ordinary. So I wonder if you could just start off by giving us a sense in the sort of the list of identities we have here, you're Canadian, I think vegetarian, you're a parent. No, no, I'm not a vegetarian. You're not a vegetarian. Not. Okay. <laughs> you're an oldest sibling. You're a Honda Civic driver, and you're also a queer person. Among many other things, what are the identities that are most important for our listeners to know and take into account for your ordinary story? The most important identity. Well, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point you raise because – you know, on the one hand, you say the book is very specific to me, but the reason I decided to write the book actually is because the further and further I went into uh, treatment and also the reading of the vast literature on cancer, both scientific and personal and commentary and growing every day, the more I realized that actually what was happening was precisely not specific to me. So um, on the one hand, it's absolutely critical that I'm Canadian, I think, because it gave me an insight, it gives me an insight into a different way of doing healthcare, providing healthcare, something that many Americans haven't necessarily experienced. Um, and also I come from a sense that, that access to healthcare is something that we kind of should be taking for granted. Um, and so while many Americans who I met were um, surprised, astonished, being followed by the collection agency, um, shocked, outraged, and terrified that they were losing insurance or that they were reaching the caps for their insurance or that they were facing huge co-pays, um, I had experience of a different way. And so I could see in a way how, how the... Um, tenets of a private system sort of undergird so many elements of American, not just healthcare, but life, law, advertising, um, the ways in which people think about things. So I think, I think that gave me a particular view on that subject. And similarly, being queer, I had a different kind of relationship to a lot of the, a lot of the pressures that many, many people I spoke to have around the pressures to pass, to look as if one's doing better than one is, to um, to deal with the stigma of cancer from many different perspectives. So, so I think there's a way in which those different identities are both critical and also um, not so critical in looking at the broader American uh, culture that I was trying to do. But, um, but also, 
I was trying to bear in mind and um, draw attention to the fact that younger people and queer people and um, people from certain demographics are more apt to be excluded from um, from diagnosis, from access to healthcare, from certain things. So I was trying to draw that fine line between drawing attention to individuals and um, and their experiences and lives with um, cancer, and also the ways in which a lot of the cancer rhetorics force an individuality when, in fact, really so much of the scientific research and the the publicity around early detection and so on is so population-based. It's not based on the individuals who then tend to get excluded. Yeah, that's a, such a great phrasing of it, um, of what you show in your um, el- your elaboration of numbers, whether it's lifespans or statistics and probabilities, the, um, the forced individuality, which really um, presents a particular version of cancer um, or representation of cancer. And um, just on the sense of uh, how your actual work on the book um, developed. I'm going to hand this question over to Hayes. Hi. So oftentimes throughout the book, for example, in the chapter Rubble, where you're talking about the look good, feel better seminar that you attended, you explained that you viewed the experience as a researcher rather than as a patient. And my question is, did you enter these situations with the intention of researching or did that come out after you enter the situation as a patient? No, it definitely came out of, um, it's the latter rather than the former. Um, When I was first diagnosed, actually, I was quite determined um, not to be one of those people who writes about their illness experience. That wasn't at all what I wanted to do. I didn't find that a particularly interesting genre of of work, that, that stuff that I'd read. Um, mostly on that, and, you know, some of it is the biases that I think are broadly out there um, around doing that in anthropology. However, what I came to find in attending, for example, workshops such as that one, which is one of the first experiences I had in that world, um, was, you know, being in there and leaving that and thinking, oh, my God, this is so fucked up, and sort of then starting to write about it just in terms of writing little blurbs in terms of keeping up my own analytic work as I was sort of taking time off my job and stuff. And then the accretion of those sort of gradually became the rough draft of a, of a book. The, um, the book is really um, wonderful because it's such a distinctive style for an academic to write in. So one of the things um, I was curious about, given that Susan Suntag um, recurs as a, and her, her important work on cancer um, comes up throughout the book, what you really turn to as models, because it, the book is so wonderful in that it pulls from from literature, not only from the social sciences, it pulls from art um, and Hannah Wilkie and advertising campaigns, whether you really turn to any um, models in your own writing. Yeah, you know, I was trained, I did my PhD in, a, in, a, in the History of Consciousness program, and my advisor was Donna Haraway. And she is known for, um, you know, both in her own theory and her pedagogy for really focusing on the question rather than the method and material. And so I was taught as specifically as a method, as an approach to 
try and answer my questions as broadly as possible and follow those uh, studies wherever they took me. And so, you know, for me, a huge part of, for example, looking at um, the economics of healthcare, for example, is looking at the economics of insurance provision, is looking through the courts to see um, to see what it means to claim bankruptcy, um, looking at hospital advertisements, looking at the people who um, produce carcinogens and see how they get sort of off the hook in policy and law for for doing that, and then also notice that they also produce other kinds of drugs to treat cancers, for example. So I really try and follow up all of those paradoxes as far as I could go. And in terms of models, you know, I was really, it was really important to me not to write a book that was, you know, either this happened and this happened and isn't it terrible. I didn't want to write it from sort of an injured perspective, nor did I want to write it from too much of an analytic perspective, like argument, 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 because really what I want to do here is raise a bunch of questions and bring the reader along with me to figure out where those questions go and how we might think about answering them. And so to to bring the reader along, I think, was my writerly approach, the kind of show, don't tell, which is, you know, a term, for example, that poets use. So I studied a lot of poetry and took poetry courses, for example, and I looked at um, books on how to write fiction and I read a lot of fiction. So I turned to that to try and figure out writerly strategies that would help me try and make the reader a companion with me in this exploration, rather than, I think, what you know, we're taught to do often as academics, which is to tell the reader what's going on. Did you find writing um, and creating a text, though itself limiting as a way of a form of expression? Did I find it limiting? Yeah. That's the question? I mean, yes and no. I mean, I think all, all pieces of work are best when they have limits, you know, um, and so I think that, in fact, it was very enabling for me to be writing a book rather than trying to write and draw and write poetry, for example, although all that has its place as well. And so what I got to do, I feel like, in this book is really spend a lot of time with the sentences and with the language and with the ideas in a way that was actually incredibly liberating. And I think in part because it was my second book, I didn't feel that I had to do anything that any other anthropologist would get to say, this is anthropology or this is not anthropology, as I did with my first book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, um, one of the things that, or the, the questions that I think the book really, p- at least pulled me along with um, really well was showing and asking the ways in which uh, people are exposed to carcinogens, so the, the political economy of cancer, but also just ex- exposed to cancer as a discourse, as a way of living, as a, a set of practices and, and these kinds of things. And so um, just thinking about the issue of the political economy of carcinogens, you give some really um, stunning information about corporations in particular and how the, the same forms, the same corporations that are um, both causing all forms of um, toxicities are also the ones who are um, attempting to raise awareness about cancer and the, the conundrums this produces. And I want to hand the question over here to Bianca. 
So in chapter three, you take a stance against pinkwashing、um, and the fact that a lot of these companies are using this as a marketing tool.、Um, I was wondering if you could go into greater detail about how something that seems positive on the outside、um, can lead to negative consequences when you explore it deeper. Maybe a starting point for this also is just the question of、um, for listeners, the the new books listeners who、um, have not yet read the book, what is pinkwashing? You know, so what I was trying to do in that chapter is just really take apart the pink marketing thing, and I do that in another chapter that you mentioned before, which is the chapter nine, the chapter on on rubble, which is to try and think about how cancer becomes. Normalized through many kinds of metaphors and tropes, tropes like randomized control trials and science and population epidemiology. And in this chapter, I take that question up by looking at some of the pink ribbon stuff. And since I wrote this particular chapter in 2005 or so, a lot more literature has come out on this on this issue.、Um, But I was specifically interested here in developing a kind of queer analysis of how, you know, with a disease like breast cancer, there's such a relentless、um, normatizing gender aspect to it, like the the pressure on people to get reconstructions, for example, and the idea that that I think is.、Um, Very positive that people want to help each other, and that there aren't many options for that. So that the pink ribbon and pink marketing and so on do offer one、um, positive seeming way in which people can be involved and help feel like they're helping fix this problem. But of course, if you scratch the surface a little bit, and this is not about judging anybody who who ascribes to these things or who who does them. I want. All parts of this just to show up in the equation, though. You scratch the surface and you see that it's actually very difficult to find out where that money goes. For example, when you're buying pink Kentucky Fried Chicken, and it's very difficult to、um, not to notice that you know companies like YoPlay, for example, have the pink ribbons on the cap, and they were. Uh, using milk with hormone, you know, hormone treat from hormone treated cows, and so that has been shown to be more likely to, or to raise the risk of breast cancer. So those are some of the points I was trying to make, and also just to do a broader reading of kind of violence and cancer as really actually a violent disease, and thus comparing it to、um, car crashes and also the activism around HIV/AIDS. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the、um, the the integration of the HIV/AIDS、um, the model was a, a pretty interesting distinction with with what you're able to show in the book as well.、Um, the issue of the、um, sort of global corporations and who who is doing what in in these different kinds of campaigns, both to、um, sort of fuel the political economy. But also to、uh, profit, or at least market,、um, using sort of the cancer rhetoric, it suggests that this is a global story. But at the same time, there's something very distinctive that you're pointing about out about the American healthcare system. So one of the questions I wanted to ask was、um, about the extent to which you see this as definitely an American、uh, story because of our regulatory system, especially the.、Um, 
who's included and who's ex- excluded from healthcare. And um, I can only imagine it was very uh, difficult to have the moving target of healthcare in America as you were writing this book um, that just came out last year. Yeah, yeah, th- that was definitely a moving target, <laughs> as was the issue of, um, you know, homophobia and and even just cancer and young people and cancer. I mean, it's all it's all changing so fast. But, you know, having said that, that to me wasn't as important. I mean, the things and statistics are always going to change a little bit in any book. But I think, you know, the analysis still stands, the way that cancer is so central to American economics uh, and the ways in which we use things like identity and um, many other ways to kind of try and shield us from the real challenge it poses to American capitalism all still stand and will stand, um, you know, no matter how those things change, I think. Um, one of the sort of identity issues that I think you um, really elaborate um, in, a, in a new, seemingly interesting way is the issue of what is actually being accomplished with uh, sort of pink rhetoric and the idea of what happens to, um, with breast cancer in particular, ideas about gender and sexuality. And in the, I'm, I'm thinking in particular about the very, very fun to read story of you in a yoga class whipping off your shirt. Um, and you, you go on to suggest that what's happening in different sorts of um, uh, cancer uh, marketing techniques is not the sexualization of women, but the creation of innocence and this idea of um, a, a desexualized woman in breast cancer. Um, so here, I just wanted to hand it over to Sarah to ask you a little bit more about the gender um, comp- uh, dynamics of different kinds of cancers. Okay, so in Chapter 3, um, going off of that, you talk a little bit about um, genderizing breast cancer, and then you bring it back up in Chapter 7 about screening when you talk about um, physicians com- not completing breast exams. So I was hoping you could talk about and elaborate on ways sex and gender come into play in cancer. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, and there's lots of work about about how, um, for example, uh, pharmaceuticals have been tested more on men than on women traditionally, and how women have, there's a, there's a wonderful book, um, uh, the name of which escapes me right now, um, but it's a history of breast cancer, and he talks about the most incredibly horrific treatments that women have been given for breast cancer, and he calls those women um, over the last century a sort of uh, sisterhood of guinea pigs, you know, and it's just a marvelous phrase that he's come up with after having really explained to us what kinds of horrible treatments women underwent, even oftentimes when they weren't able to diagnose properly uh, tumors as malignant or benign even, which, um, you know, is also a huge problem in actually trying to get data on the prevalence of the disease. Um, but I think that question of having... Breast exams is a really interesting one, particularly considering that physicians and and um, family physicians, general practitioners are more and more hands-off more generally, not just in terms of giving the exams. And so this, there's a kind of idea that 
you should go and have the test, go and have the mammogram when, uh, when in fact there's a high rate of error with, with mammograms. And also physicians are coming under more and more scrutiny for spending too much time with patients. So there's not a lot of time for doing the full two minute, um, breast exam. And at the same time, if they feel squeamish about it and haven't been trained in doing that, um, you end up with a problem that women, um, tend to be the ones who suffer from. So, uh, so there's so many ways in which perhaps arguably not really because anybody wants this to happen, but just the, you know, conglomeration of events work in such a way that then women suffer the consequences in just so many different ways. One of the the struggles that I can imagine um, with in in reading the book and uh, appreciating it is the issue of raising questions because it um, then um, raises issues about how to engage politically if you have a, if you have sets of questions, but. Um, I I know at least that as a, a good liberal, some trepidation in actually then sort of engaging politically. So I wanted to ask how you think about um, questioning as a critique um, and then how that translates into actual political action and, and things like how the law should change, what ought what ought people, what ought the American legal system be doing for uh, cancer? And here, um, Ethan had a question. Hi. Um, I had a specific question about medical malpractice. Um, and sort of because medical malpractice, especially in cancer diagnosis, is so unique um, because you're really focusing on if there was a misdiagnosis and like the earlier history of that patient, do you think there should be some sort of separate subdivision for cancer cases and sort of more focus on uh, medical malpractice in terms of cancer disease. A separate subdivision in law, you mean? Yeah, if you could elaborate on that, that'd be great. I mean, there is. So so in law, everybody, you know, when you bring a case, you need to cite, um, you need to cite precedent. And so normally um, a case like that would cite precedent that has to do with cancer misdiagnosis. So in that sense, there is, a, you know, a specific area of law around cancer misdiagnosis. Um but I think the question of how to engage politically is a really, really interesting one because some of what I do in the book is kind of try and unwrap the ways in which we have engaged with cancer are in some ways apolitical or have apolitical consequences or have been kind of taken over by people whose politics are different, people whose politics are around making money, for example, instead of lessening the disease. And so... And so I think from there come some very clear kind of different ways that we could do it. For example, I'm saying, you know, instead of sentimentalizing the cancer page, patient, which will always be through that sentiment, sentimentalization, a kind of um, stigma, even if that stigma is a heroic one, celebrating the heroic cancer survivor, for example, um, there's still a way in which focusing on cancer uh, takes away from the broader political questions. And that's what I wanted to, um, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is How Cancer Becomes Us because I don't see this book as specifically only about cancer. I see it as a book about cancer that unravels the way in which you can see some of the ugly sides of American culture and politics and economics through the disease. And so, 
to extend that argument then and saying, you know, if we stop looking at that person with cancer, stop looking at Lance Armstrong and the brave survivor, and we start looking at instead the carcinogens in our environment and the money made off cancer treatment, we would have a much more politically savvy kind of way of addressing this problem. So let's not have marches for, you know, our friends with cancer. Let's have marches against X, Y, and Z carcinogens being dumped into the environment. Like, let's just change the focus a little bit. And so I think that's the kind of really political argument that I'm trying to make here is that here's what's happening. Here's how it's happening in detail through this book. Here's how it's, here's how we're so invested in it. Our medical system's invested in it. Our scientific system's invested in it. You know, everything makes it hard for us to see this, but, you know, we can follow it in these ways and now we can really shift the political question. That's what I'm trying to do in the book. That's great. And I feel like that's a, a great note to wrap up on um, is the way you're able to shift the, the, um, the, the political forms of engagement. It, and it strikes me that one of the things that the book um, is, is also a meditation on time. And as you mentioned, the subtitle of how cancer becomes us be, because you're showing how the question of um, how people are valued and who is doing the valuation in um, sort of the spheres of law and medicine and, and everyday life, um, if even if we can deal with, with separating them out that way, that the ways in which um, future thinking and uh, thinking about the past and thinking about uh, people as cur- you know, currently dead as you, um, as you riff on in some of the early chapters mm-hmm. also brings out the questions of, of numbers and time and um, sort of the phenomenology of, of cancer itself. Um, which should also be part of political activism too. So I would just want to thank you very much for your time and ask um, what you see is next uh, for you in terms of projects and work and thinking. Yeah, well, I have a couple of things going. One is um, I'm looking back on some work I've done in the past on automobility and trying to figure out ways of re-engaging um, that work after this one, thinking about uh, the violence that happens to consumers and has happened specifically through the 20th century with these most appalling automobile designs. Um, so I'm looking at that and I'm also looking at how to broaden ethnographic thinking through looking at, um, through looking at art and performance artists and trying to understand and develop wider methods for ethnographic engagement. Well, that's uh, that's that's too uh, rich to let go. Can you say just a bit more about uh, broader ways of engaging ethnographically in terms of methods? That just sounds great. Yeah, I'm sure yet. I mean, I'm teaching this class in the winter, and I have some performance artists taking it, and a bunch of anthropology grad students. And we're just going to experiment. We're going to do improvisations. We're going to think about how, when we enter the field our bodies enter the field, and we are collaborating with people. You know, I think with increased globalization, all of us anthropologists are running against this problem of how do we still present ourselves as the experts when people are, the pe- so often the people we're studying are also highly educated and so on. And how can we see ourselves, you know, in many situations more as collaborators um, how can we make uh, ethnography and anthropology more kind of dynamic and creative fields? And there are a number of us, you know, here and at Davis and, and elsewhere who are really interested in just kind of experimenting and see where we can take this. 
Hmm. And it sounds so interesting in terms of topics that it would open up as well in, in terms of um, approaches to thinking about things like uh, like pain, which of course is sort of central to thinking about cancer and pleasure and all these kinds of things. Um, well, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And thank you for engaging my, my work so closely. I really appreciate that. 